Well, good, e good evening, everyone, and uh, welcome to Wolfson, those of you who are not from Wolfson. Um, and this is the first in a series of lectures here at Wolfson College looking at the future of diplomacy. Um, I'm Tim Hitchens. I've spent over 30 years being involved with diplomacy, but now I am part of Oxford University, and that means I can probably talk to you about the past of diplomacy. Um, uh, I think I'll have to leave it to others to talk about the future of diplomacy, about what comes next. And in this series of lectures, we'll be looking at diplomacy from a variety of angles. Uh, in January, the High Commissioner of Rwanda, a remarkable public figure, Yamina Karitanyi, will give us her view from Africa, especially the question of how one pulls away from the classic donor-recipient relationships. In early May, Nick Burns, former Assistant Secretary of State and currently Professor at the Kennedy School of Government, will be flying over to talk about where the United States now fits into this all. And later in May, Peter Gluckman, formerly the Government Chief Scientific Advisor to the New Zealand Prime Minister, will be coming to widen our perspective and to talk about the way diplomacy in science is now so important in spreading consensus and stopping the spread of disease. Um, I should add a quick advert, uh, though it's not strictly in this series. On the 1st of November here, we will be hosting a lecture in this hall on a classical theme by Professor Kathleen Coleman, and it will be called Spectacular Diplomacy, Nero and the Reception of Tiridates of Armenia in the Bay of Naples. So there'll be a retrospective look at um, the diplomacy of 2,000 years ago as well. Um, it's an honor and a pleasure to introduce the Japanese ambassador to the United Kingdom, Mr. Koji Tsuruoka. His father was Japanese ambassador to a number of places, also I think to the UN at the end. And so from childhood, he has been brought up in an English-speaking environment, very many different kinds of English. He went to high school in New York. Uh, he studied law at Tokyo University and then graduate studies at Harvard Law School. He was one of that band of very bright young Japanese diplomats who were assigned as the foreign minister and prime minister's official interpreter, privy to the most sensitive conversations, but unfortunately then sworn to secrecy. And when I was first in Japan as a diplomat in the 1980s, he was interpreter to the then Prime Minister Nakasone and then the then Foreign Minister Abe, father of the current Prime Minister. As diplomats, we often divide into those who do bilateral diplomacy, so the relations between two countries, and those who specialize in multilateral diplomacy. And Ambassador Tsuruoka, I think it's fair to say, falls squarely into the latter category. His career has revolved, revolved around the United Nations, around the G8, around trade negotiations. And these diplomats have to be among the toughest that there are, um, and their affability is often skin deep. They work very closely with senior politicians, and it's no surprise that Tsuruoka-san was, while I was ambassador in Tokyo, one of the very closest advisors to Prime Minister Abe. The ambassador came to the UK just over two years ago 
and made an immediate impact. He speaks frankly, especially on issues relating to Brexit, in a way that belies Japan's reputation for public caution, and I think we all welcome that. Tectonic plates are shifting in the world and nowhere more so than in earthquake-prone East Asia. The relationships between China, the US, Japan and the Koreas are particularly fascinating and particularly important at the moment. And it's certainly my view that this is not something happening on the edge of the globe, but actually at its centre. It is not the Far East. And if the critical global relationship at the moment is the US with China, then Asian diplomacy will be a key determinant in global affairs this decade and beyond. So with that, Ambassador Tsuroka, please. Thank you, thank you very much, Ambassador Hitchens, uh, as I call him. Uh, I've known him Ambassador of UK to Japan. Um, uh, we've been uh, very good friends ever since we met in Tokyo. And one thing uh, most of you may not know, he speaks such excellent Japanese that if he, you spoke over the phone to uh, Ambassador Hitchens, you would think he's a Japanese. And that doesn't happen very often. Uh, however, uh, language skills is not the only talent or skill that he has. Uh, he has many talents, including writing haiku, which I just heard he hasn't uh, continued uh, because of the work he has to do at uh, the Wolfson College. Uh, but uh, it is uh, one glimpse of uh, the many artistic talent on top of professional diplomatic uh, talent that he has. So oh, this is, uh, uh, as you see, the non-diplomats will think, uh, talking about arts, talking about wine, talking about good food, uh, diplomacy is about having a good time. I would not disagree with that, Yes, uh, we're having a good time. Uh, what's wrong about enjoying your profession? But uh, for those who are interested to move on to and work in the international environment, you also have to be intellectually prepared. Uh, that's why I think uh, uh, Ambassador Hitchens uh, has proposed this uh, series of uh, talks about uh, 21st century diplomacy. Uh, which I think is a very, very uh, relevant theme to be taken up at this time, because the world is indeed changing. Uh, even one year ago, uh, many things uh, uh, had not been expected to happen this year, and nobody knows what may happen even three months from now or six months from now, which is a critical time, by the way, for UK and EU, and uh, uh, after that, uh, what? <clears throat> uh, this is uh, 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 a very uh, turbulent world and we need to really look very hard and study the root causes of what are the reasons that have led us here. So oh, I uh, uh, was uh, a bit uh, um, 
encouraged by uh, Ambassador Hitchens' initial remark to uh, make a few points before going to, or maybe I would just go through a bit uh, of uh, what I've ex prepared and then touch on some of uh, what I think to be the major points uh, that we need to focus on the 21st century diplomacy and then uh, discuss uh, the various uh, concrete uh, measures that uh, I have had some experience on. Now, <clears throat> yes, sorry. Uh, well, this is the outline. Um, I'm not uh, sure I will follow it uh, through because uh, I have the habit of uh, moving away from, uh, uh, by the way, not that uh, because this is being prepared by, by my staff. Uh, I prepared it myself, but uh, uh, it's a bit uh, uh, a little while ago, so uh, uh, my my thoughts are evolving. So, but, uh, if you could see, the, this is these are the topics that I thought perhaps when we talk about Asia today are relevant. Well, first, uh, uh, why is Asia relevant, or why Asia important? Uh, it's just uh, obvious based on the facts and the. Uh, position that they occupy in the world today. Uh, well, population is not necessarily uh, the decisive element, um, but uh, still it is a major uh, element uh, in uh, the importance of any particular region. When you put it into the context of sovereign states, uh, you could see there the entry. You have China and India, both more than a billion uh, population. The total of uh, Asian region, according to this statistics, is 7.4, uh, which is, of course, uh, uh, larger than European Union or any other part of the world because Asia is 59% of the global population. The uh, uh, population will continue to grow. Uh, which I think is a very good thing. Um, the growth uh, on the regions differ. So this is a, a forecast that, uh, again, you really don't know what may happen, but uh, uh, academicians, scientists have analyzed in various ways. But in any case, we know that population will continue to grow, and this is a challenge that the globe will face. The weight of the economy, or the Asian region's economy in the global economy, is another important feature of assessing how important Asia is. Of course, you have to define, when you say Asia, what that means. Asia and Pacific is perhaps the more normal way of looking at what Asia is all about. Uh, inclusive of China, India, and nowadays, of course, Australia, uh, New Zealand, they claim to be, if not Asian country, at least Pacific states. Uh, so these are included. But you could see <coughs> the uh, weight of uh, Asia in terms of economy uh, surpassing all the other regions. Um, and this is, again, natural if you look at the 59% of the population in Asia. Uh, the uh, economy uh, also should be uh, quite large. Uh, if you look at uh, <coughs> the um, more specific um, breakdown, the uh, total Asia uh, continues to grow and uh, will grow even further. 
Uh, but we have a little bit of a breakdown, you could see uh, East Asia, um, where Japan is, Southeast Asia, Australia, New Zealand, and uh, Central Asia, as well as Pacific Islands. So uh, there is diversity, as you can see, in Asia, uh, which is uh, another challenge we'll need to keep in mind. Now, what is the challenge, or what is uh, an important element in global strategic issues we need to discuss uh, at this time? Uh, it is the rise of China. Uh, <clears throat> China, for a very long time, uh, has uh, uh, not been able to develop its own economy. Uh, it's uh, going to be reaching the 70th anniversary of their uh, independence soon, but uh, if you look at the history of a nation, a nation of less than 100 years is relatively new. Uh, well, China is an old country, uh, but the modern China is a relatively new phenomenon. Uh, but they have been successful, of course. These are uh, the pictures of what I think have been very decisive to achieve China's success. First is 2001. China's accession to the WTO. Why is it so important? Because if you are a WTO member, you will not be discriminated. Your products will be treated on what they call MFN basis, most favored nation basis, just like any other nation you trade with. Before becoming WTO member, uh, China was always exposed to the danger of discrimination, especially by the U.S. market. The U.S. had legislation that could hit only China, uh, but not the others, uh, for political and other reasons, because uh, China was not WTO. There was no WTO before that, by the way. It was GATT, uh, because they were not uh, GATT members. It's not happening today. Well, we don't know what are the rules that are applied today, or what are the rules the U.S. administration understands as uh, being applicable to uh, imports to U.S. today, whether they are ruled by WTO or not. Uh, these are issues that we did not expect to come out, but uh, a lively issue we are currently debating. In any case, uh, since uh, <clears throat> this assurance of being able to trade uh, e equally with everybody else uh, of uh, WTO membership, they went further in uh, uh, agreeing on more preferential trading terms with a number of important partners. And you can see ASEAN uh, Australia. Uh, if you look at the, the size, uh, of uh, the volume of trade that they conduct. Uh, China is, uh, for most countries, the largest uh, trading uh, partner. And imports and exports, uh, the last uh, blue uh, uh, part is China. Uh, you can see that uh, uh, the, the weight is uh, quite significant. And EU, this is EU's top trading partners in 2017. Uh, in terms of imports, uh, they are the largest. In terms of export, exporting EU products out, uh, they are second. 
So, uh, how, uh, after introducing this uh, uh, important element that uh, we need to keep in mind in looking at how 21st century global issues, global strategy needs to be devised, let me uh, go back a bit and talk about uh, what uh, Japan has been trying to do in the post-war period. You all know that uh, Japan uh, foolishly fought the wrong war and uh, we uh, regret that very much and uh, we have hurt uh, many British nationals in the way and uh, I'm very sorry, uh, not that I can uh, really be, uh, <coughs> apologize on anybody's behalf but it is a fact that uh, uh, the Japanese Imperial Army have committed very atro uh, serious atrocities and I'd like to uh, tell you uh, that I regret it and very sorry about that as Ambassador of Japan. But this uh, led Japan to make a commitment of never uh, be engaged in any war ever again. So the Japanese uh, uh, objective since the end of the war was to create a peaceful world uh, in which Japan could, if we do well, prosper. And therefore, uh, as you know again, uh, we've been able to succeed quite well. Uh, we have benefited by joining the global community which was and is rule-based. The three major principles that uh, we still uphold and continue to promote is the rule of law, democracy and free trade. Free trade just happens to be today uh, not a phrase that's welcomed by everyone anymore. However, Japan and UK are two countries that can uh, pronounce the word free trade and be proud that we are supporting that. And we hope that we'll be able to promote free trade even further, of course, according to the rules. These are uh, the rules uh, or the values that have been very uh, strongly advocated, and I'm not going to bore you by uh, referring to my uh, political master's uh, pronouncements, but it is not just uh, Mr. Abe, it is Japanese diplomacy, rule of law, democracy, and free trade. And uh, as a result of all these three combined, uh, we signed uh, with the European Union what we call EPA, Economic Partnership Agreement, that encompasses all range of economic activities to be uh, combined between the two economies, Japan and uh, UK, EU. Uh, what happens uh, with UK after uh, UK departs EU is something we are currently uh, discussing. Now, as I was saying, uh, these are the post-World War II success that uh, we are proud of, that we have achieved uh, after hard work and lots of uh, uh, friendship and collaboration with our uh, partners, including UK. Uh, but uh, those uh, values and principles are today not necessarily uh, stable or could be taken for granted. There are challenges that are upcoming. Uh, now, we need to make sure that these values, which uh, so far has been proven to be a very important basis for global stability and prosperity to be 
sustained and promoted further. Now, how do you do that? One country alone cannot do it. Uh, democracy, by definition, is not one. You need number of countries agreeing on the objective and then uh, putting resources and efforts to achieve that. That's why we need to cooperate with the like-minded partners. Now, in the uh, 70 plus years of uh, post-war period, uh, Japan has been an ally to the United States. The Japanese security depends very much on US uh, protection uh, I think we still have to call it nuclear umbrella. Japan is in a very unique geographic position. Almost all countries neighboring Japan are nuclear powers. US, Russia, China. We are not going to call North Korea nuclear power, but they claim they are possessing nuclear weapons. So perhaps uh, the only country that doesn't have, or maybe a few countries that don't have uh, uh, nuclear weapons around Japan is South Korea, Philippines, uh, Taiwan is not a country, but it's uh, an entity. Uh, but then we have these uh, um, uh, major nuclear powers around us. But we have uh, become a member uh, and signatory to the non-proliferation treaty uh, which commits us not to develop uh, nuclear weapons uh, capability and therefore when we are faced with nuclear weapons threat uh, we need protection from those that can afford us with an umbrella. Uh, the Japanese uh, defense spending has been minimal so far. Uh, we don't even call uh, what would be internationally seen as armed forces, we call them self-defense forces. Uh, the talk about uh, revising constitution is uh, sometimes reported in the press that m maybe some of you are familiar with, uh, are really uh, sort of uh, a different discussion in terms of uh, uh, the scope and the content when you compare it uh, to other countries. The e experience of the war in Japan uh, has made discussion about military issues very politically sensitive uh, among the public and uh, even the farthest right uh, is not going to propose for example Japan possessing nuclear weapon it's totally out of question first politically but second strategically if you only have a few what does it do for you it's uh, more or dangerous try to have one because you may be attacked before you can reach one. Although some countries uh, clandestinely uh, might have achieved some. But in any case, uh, we are uh, being allied with the United States and the United States is a democratic country, uh, rule-based, and uh, is trying to uh, uh, promote uh, uh, those values globally. This has been a tradition, and we have had a very, very a strong relationship with the United States, just like uh, uh, UK has uh, always had. Uh, and the UK uh, prouds itself of uh, having a special relationship uh, with the United States. We, on the side of Japan, in Asia, we believe uh, we are maybe not equal to UK, but as important to US as uh, UK is for US in Europe. 
this also leads us to leads me to try to promote Japan UK collaboration in conjunction with the US global policy because we are the two indes indispensable allies to US. Same time, uh, Europe uh, needs to also focus more attention to, in my view, Asia-Pacific. Uh, the reason for this is uh, the ones I cited earlier, uh, the relevance of uh, Asia-Pacific to global issues is uh, becoming more and more pronounced. Uh, UK attention to focusing more security uh, relationship with Japan uh, is very welcome because UK is rule-based democratic values. It's a very uh, uh, systemic, uh, uh, sustainable democracy. Um, the uh, military exercises that are jointly held, um, air, uh, Navy and uh, ground forces as well uh, is taking place which is unprecedented in Japan-UK history. This is in light of uh, a number of uh, challenges that uh, Asia-Pacific region now faces uh, from certain quarters. France is also oh, very um, active about uh, uh, engaging in Asia-Pacific you may know France has uh, some territories still in the Pacific. The next one is uh, more economy. <coughs> um, TPP uh, is uh, originally uh, promoted by US, uh, the uh, participating states at the time was 12, uh, Japan being the last country joining the negotiation and I was the chief negotiator, chief negotiator for Japan for uh, the TPP negotiation. U.S. pulled out uh, after Donald, Mr. Trump became president, uh, so Japan uh, tried to uh, salvage uh, what could, and uh, we had, uh, fortunately, a agreement from uh, the remaining 11, and uh, this uh, uh, CPTPP, was uh, signed uh, with the 11 countries, so 12 minus U.S. Uh, this is a very important uh, uh, agreement uh, because it is not just uh, discussing uh, what are the custom rates, the tariff rates you impose upon each other, but it is more based on a democratic system of governance. Uh, rulemaking has to be very transparent and democratic. Uh, in one, if I were to describe TPP in one word, I can say it's the democratic principled economic agreement. Everything has to be transparent, everything has to be agreed, there is no unilateral action that can be condoned, uh, and a dispute settlement process is very much in place. So an effective, efficient, a functional trade mechanism that gives comfort to the participants, the business circles, uh, the individuals who are wanting to do trade, uh, it gives assurance that uh, their faith in having free trade will be secured. Unfortunately, the departure of the US, of course, has diminished the value of uh, TPP. Uh, we are still hoping that sometime in the future they may come back uh, once they see the merit uh, which uh, hopefully will come soon, 
the problem with uh, the 12 country TPP was uh, if US left there was a provision in the 12 uh, TPP that uh, unless US approves the uh, agreement the agreement will not enter into force so with their departure had we not been able to change that provision they would have uh, terminated the life of TPP forever so we changed that among the 11 of us uh, had a revision the 11 version says if we have three or plus then the agreement will come into force Japan has already approved it uh, we have uh, a number of others who are in the process and uh, I am expecting that before the end of this year uh, this uh, 11 country TPP will enter into force which means the uh, countries that have approved it through their democratic process internally the liberalizing measures will be in place for example Japan uh, is famous for being uh, uh, very protective of uh, agricultural uh, industry in Japan the farming industry beef is one major item uh, which is politically very sensitive although you may doubt uh, whether foreign beef could really match the quality of uh, Japanese Wagyu <laughs> uh, the irrationality of trade talks is always uh, very difficult to explain but in any case uh, the Australian beef uh, will have very preferential uh, tariff treatments under TPP once the agreement enters into force so they will become a strong contender uh, I don't think vis-a-vis -vis the Japanese beef because it's a different quality of beef although it may be beef uh, it's a different food so um, but it will be more easily accessible and it's good beef by the way Aussie beef is quite good originally maybe coming from Angus beef in Scotland but in any case uh, that beef will have a lot better uh, competitive advantage compared to those that are not TPP members so those benefits will come in once the agreement enters into force and uh, our expectation that it will happen before the end of the year at which time there will be possibility for expanding membership uh, one feature of TPP which is different from a number of other trade uh, plurilateral agreements is that it is open to everyone there's no geographic definition there's no limitation in membership the priority is given to Asia-Pacific region because this is an agreement that has been negotiated under the scope of APEC uh, which is Asia-Pacific Economic Community but uh, the intention was not to limit that agreement available to APEC countries only it is available to everyone who is willing to come on board and abide by the rules and make the offer of uh, freeing their uh, economy for uh, competition with the others so uh, it can have uh, Latin Americans it can have uh, Africans it can have Europeans it can have UK that's what you might have read uh, in the recent uh, reports uh, from Tokyo uh, in the British uh, newspapers now there are other uh, mechanisms of promoting multilateral or plurilateral cooperation we call plurilateral cooperation when the countries are not totally universal the universal ones uh, the jargon is uh, called the multilateral uh, multilateralism 
has been a dirty word uh, in US politics for many decades, so they never will put it in writing uh, of the point. But uh, uh, in terms of vocabularies, uh, some people invented this term plurilateral, uh, differentiating it into a smaller uh, group of countries. Uh, if it's true, it can, three it can already be plurilateral. Uh, we are trying to promote that, and uh, there are other countries that are also trying to promote that. One uh, important uh, um, <coughs> feature in the Southeast Asian uh, region is uh, ASEAN. Uh, you may know uh, ASEAN now has 15 members. Uh, originally it was five, it has grown, and <coughs> there are, uh, they have become um, a voice in uh, bringing the Southeast Asian countries together. Uh, Southeast Asia, Indochina and uh, the ocean part, they are very diverse. Uh, religions, ethnicity, language, um, a level of economic development, they're all quite different. Uh, but they want to unite themselves not to become one state, but to coordinate their policies economically and strategically. It's been uh, going on for quite some time, and we are a strong supporter of uh, ASEAN unity. Well, what are the other initiatives? We have uh, the uh, Belt and Road, uh, OBR, what was the acronym? One Belt, One Road, OBOR, uh, they call it now. This is a Chinese initiative of connecting uh, China with the other parts of the world. So, uh, and they also uh, have established, uh, aside from uh, the Asian Development Bank, uh, a bank of their own called uh, AIIB. Now, what we consider this uh, uh, not a challenge or a problem, but a idea of contributing to uh, improving and promoting economic development through the region, not just limited to Asia, uh, provided that the programs are conducted uh, in compliance with established norms of international law. Uh, there is an institution that's called OECD. Uh, the headquarter is in Paris. Initially, it was a European uh, institution that coordinated European policies of uh, economy and uh, development. Uh, it is now uh, a larger uh, system, uh, still only 35 countries, so relatively small, of developed, uh, industrialized, um, in most cases, democracies. Uh, Japan uh, is a member of that. Uh, not too many outside of Europe are, which is a pity, and we should expand that. Uh, one of the major contributions they made, which not many people know, opposed to people being aware of the value of WTO, the OECD rulemaking capacity has been extremely useful. They have uh, devised a standard of how countries should behave internationally. In other words, subsidies uh, can be extremely a, uh, dangerous for any sound trading system because uh, you could provide subsidies for political reason or to distort 
the competitive uh, advantages or the competitive conditions by a giving um, subsidizing uh, uh, payments that will enable companies to uh, take the whole market and then of course the same thing applies domestically under the uh, competition laws the other competitors may be driven out so the developed economies have uh, uh, created rules that uh, forbid them doing that including anti-corruption uh, rules expecting that countries that are seriously engaged in global trade or global economy will all become OECD members. Unfortunately, that, is not, that has not happened and I don't think it will happen anytime soon because it's seen as a Western democratic uh, institution. Why should the emerging economy join it? They were not there at the outset. And this is one reason, one root cause for a number of difficulties we're having politically today in the, in the world arena. Many countries that are not uh, complying or not, not willing to comply with the existing rules cite as one reason they are not there when the rules were created. Why should they be imposed a rule that they had no participation in creation? I think there is a fact here that uh, we need to acknowledge, but it's also a fact. It may be of not your own making, if it's a rule that works for others and that works for you, it may be wiser to respect the rule and then try to join in the future rulemaking that is going to enhance the value of those rules even further. So this is what engagement is all about. Now, this is where I think we are going, coming into the uh, 21st century challenges. Um, these are just uh, scripts that uh, uh, tell you what I have uh, tried to be uh, relating to you. And uh, uh, the last one is, uh, of course, uh, you know uh, very well what they are. Uh, I believe uh, Japan and UK are two very responsible countries that need to join forces to promote uh, these issues. Just a five minute in closing. Um, why do we need to do this? Why is diplomacy, why is uh, international uh, cooperation important? Well, you will think that this is an obvious issue that, uh, of course, without international cooperation we cannot survive. Yes, true. But we are not promoting international cooperation because Japan as a state or UK as a state needs to survive. In 21st century, we are focusing more on the value of individual human being. If people are happy, they will have no resentment, no um, difficulty with others that may lead to any conflict, sometimes wars. We need to focus on the individual because the individual today are much more capable than they were decades ago. And this is the result of our successful, sustained economic development. Education is reaching all corners of the developed world it is also reaching the developing world. The fear that they had in the past of wars, 
not that everything, every wars had been uh, addressed, but mostly uh, have been controlled and addressed. Now we have common threats that we need to address. Climate change is one. One country cannot cope with climate change. We need to have international coordination and joint policy addressing the common threat. This is why the value should be coming from individual and not one state. Because the benefit of climate change, of course, could differ uh, by region uh, to region. Uh, South Pacific Island countries may be submerged under seawater and there are immigration that is uh, uh, happening regularly from uh, these Pacific Island countries uh, transporting people out to New Zealand. Uh, there is a ceiling of the number that uh, New Zealanders will accept, but because the landmass is uh, decreasing, they have no choice but to move out. Uh, that country, of course, cannot control climate change, so we have to do that. But it is not because we do it for that country, it is because it affects each and every one of us living uh, in, on, uh, in this planet. There are other threats as well. Uh, the contagious disease. Uh, even if you try very hard, uh, people travel uh, around the world all the time, which is enriching people's lives and promoting economic development and making friends with each other, of course, reduces the chances of having any conflict later. So, if you don't want to be exposed to contagious disease, there is one, of course, means to do that. You just don't travel. But that's absolutely unacceptable. The cost of traveling today is uh, so, oh, so low that almost anyone can travel around the world today if you just saved a little bit. But in the past, uh, uh, I was told by uh, a retired Japanese businessman who came to UK uh, in the 1960s, uh, his uh, one-way ticket from Tokyo to uh, UK at the time was almost worth his annual salary. And uh, you had to, of course, uh, depend on the company uh, paying for that ticket. Uh, today, that's totally nonsense. Uh, if you choose the right one, you could uh, have uh, travel out to Japan uh, five to six hundred pounds uh, still could be a fairly expensive ticket. So the chances of having people get together is of very high value. It will produce very beneficial uh, uh, results to everyone. Uh, but it is, of course, uh, Come, uh, coming with dangers. Uh, by mixing, you may be exposed to different diseases. SARS was one. Uh, Japan tried to control it, but there was a, a Taiwanese uh, citizen that came to a southern island of Japan who had SARS. Uh, we did not know, and it had to be addressed afterwards, but that is the kind of uh, uh, threat that individuals will be exposed unless there is international coordination and protection uh, nothing can be done and these are the dangers of uh, the modern times uh, some people say globalization uh, could also be dangerous in certain extent I don't totally disagree with that but we should be wiser than just rejecting that as a total idea uh, trade for example some people believe trade needs to be balanced 
Uh, I disagree with that. Uh, trade cannot be balanced. Uh, different countries with different population, different economic size, when they're engaged in trade, you just cannot have a total balance uh, between the two countries uh, when they are trading. The only way to do it is to have no trade at all. Zero, zero will be balanced, yes. But if you are trading, then it just happens that some countries uh, export more, some countries import more. Oh, but uh, is it bad? Oh, not really. It is going to enrich uh, the whole population and the globe as a total. So it really is a win-win situation if it is being addressed on the short sides of uh, uh, the uh, development. That's again looking at what the individuals uh, value to each society, each community and the nation. We have uh, been trying to promote, in the case of Japan, a concept I call, we call, human security. Look, rather than looking at state security, traditionally protected by military means, there are many government responsibility to ensuring people, individuals, to be comfortable with its own his own or her environment, which enables that person to perform the fullest of his or her capacity. If a person is capable of performing his talent in full, there will be no resentment of uh, anything that he will feel against anyone, uh, because he will feel the satisfaction of being a very constructive part of the society, and if you promote it, the world becomes much more stable, much more prosperous, and most importantly, a much happier place to live. Thank you all very much for your attention.